tonight I'd like to talk about the seven factors of awakening, and I won't be talking about all of them. I'll be um, emphasizing the energizing factors, especially investigation and joyous interest. These seven factors of awakening are beautiful qualities of mind and heart that make us strong enough that carry us all the way through to liberation. That's why they're called factors of awakening. They strengthen the heart and mind to be awakened, to settle deeply into reality the way things are. And you may have noticed that reality is a bit intense. So we need some help. And these seven factors um, give the strength to the heart and mind for this journey. This journey into anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. These truths about life that we slowly come to connect to, to understand these truths that ultimately liberate the heart and the mind of all clinging, all bondage. So the seven factors are mindfulness, and then there's three energizing factors, investigation, effort or energy, and joyous interest. And then there are three calming factors, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And as we want to be aware of the hindrances that we talked about last night, we also want to be aware of these factors of awakening. We want to be mindful of them when they're present, Because mindfulness actually encourages them to strengthen. I'm so impressed with this quality of mindfulness. Mindfulness, when uh, directed towards the hindrances, towards the unhelpful uh, states of mind and heart, it discourages them, you could say. It lessens their power. And when it is directed towards wholesome states of mind, like these factors of awakening, it strengthens them. And I always find that so amazing that it can do both. It can discourage and strengthen depending on the wholesomeness or the unwholesomeness of the quality. So perhaps we can think of meditation as a practice of gathering strength for this journey this journey into reality, this down-to-earth journey into reality. And we need a lot of personal power in the best sense of that word in order to, to walk on this earth fully awake. So a lot of practice is strengthening mindsets that give us a sense of power or self-respect or confidence or trust that allows us to relax into life, to relax into being here, to relax into 
seeing clearly. So these seven factors of awakening are these kinds of wholesome qualities that give us the strength. Mindfulness is the kingpin, the, the um, overarching quality. And then, as I said, the first three are energizing and the last three are calming. Understanding this can help balance out our practice when we need either more energy or more calm. So if there's too much energy, we might work on strengthening one of the calming factors, strengthening tranquility or concentration or equanimity. And if there's too much calm but not enough energy to balance it, we will strengthen one of the energizing factors of investigation, effort, or joyous interest. This is one of the things that us teachers are looking into when you're describing your practice. And it's one of the things that we can look into our own practice and learn how to balance it. So last night, Andrea talked about the hindrances, part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutra. The factors of awakening are also in this fourth foundation of mindfulness. So with both the hindrances and the factors of awakening, we want to make them part of our mindfulness exploration. With the factors of awakening in the Satipatthana Sutra, we're given four tasks for how to be mindful of each factor. With each one, we're instructed to know when it is present, to know when it is absent, to know why it is present or what causes it to arise, its proximate cause. And lastly, to know why it is maturing, meaning what helps it to strengthen and continue. Now that's a lot. I don't want you all to spend too much time thinking about um, all of those, those four tasks. But, but uh, when you leave here, you can think about them. It's actually a great practice for um, daily life to, to look at these factors. And, and I just love that it's so clear that we have these tasks. When is it present? When is it absent? What leads to it arising? What leads to it continuing? So I'll mention some parts of this when I talk about these individual factors. So the kingpin is mindfulness. Mindfulness um, powers all of the other factors of awakening. The Buddha said that all things are mastered by mindfulness. This kind of penetrating awareness that sees deeply into the way things are. I was walking in the woods today and I was thinking about it's a little bit like the forest when the leaves are down. It's one of the beauties of October, late October and November in this area is that the leaves are off the trees. So there's, um, you can see through into the forest. You can see the contours of the land that were hidden before. Mindfulness is similar in that it penetrates deeply into life, into what is, um, what is arising so that we can see it clearly. 
not as we think it is or we want it to be or we assume it to be, but as it clearly is. Mindfulness is our capacity to pay attention to our actual lived experience in the moment and to learn from it. Since we often talk a lot about mindfulness, I want to move right into talking about it in conjunction with the next factor of awakening called investigation or investigation of states. This this, uh, factor works in tandem with mindfulness to power our deep seeing into the way things are. Investigation manifests as an interest in deeply understanding the truth about life, leading to the clearing of delusion and the growing of wisdom. But what do we mean by investigation? When we hear this word, we might first assume that we mean thinking about or pondering. That's where we usually go with that word, investigating. But the kind of investigation that we're doing here isn't about thinking about things. It's actually learning about life through living it with mindfulness moment by moment. this moment-to-moment connection with reality to understand its nature, to reveal the truth about life. So we're aiming to see on a very um, intuitive, visceral level, not an intellectual one. However, at times on retreat, we will find that the mind wants to think a lot about dharma, And there's some way that um, those thoughts can kind of slip by our mindfulness radar. They seem legitimate for indulging. (laughs) So we'll be thinking about our practice rather than actually living our experience. So watch out for Dharma thoughts. They're very seductive. Um, I sometimes find it helpful to have a special note, Dharma thoughts to help tune up our mindfulness around this kind of thinking. It's mostly not so helpful. There is a kind of, you could say, dharma thought or insight that we get at times. So you're with your experience moment by moment. And you'll have, um, it's, a, it's almost like an aha moment. It'll be like, oh, oh. So that'll be like you'll see something, you'll understand something, and it will often then manifest as a thought. The actual understanding comes before the thought. Then it'll manifest as a thought. Great. But then what we often want to do is take that thought and run with it. And almost always everything we add is extra. It's like you've had your insight. There it is. Sometimes there's cascading insight, but that has a different feeling than kind of churning over the insight that you had. So sometimes when practice is going well, this is a form of enthusiasm that we experience. And we can just note, Dharma thought, oh, Dharma thought, okay, and, and come back to the simplicity of being with our experience. 
So this kind of investigation that we're talking about is a kind of open-hearted curiosity. A curiosity that's willing to not know. Rumi said, the the famous uh, Sufi mystic poet Rumi said, sell your cleverness and purchase bewilderment. So that's what we're actually trying to do, sell our cleverness. We know way too much. Uh, And the bewilderment here is not confusion, but the bewilderment of wonder or of not knowing. There's a Zen story I have here from, um, it's about a monk named Rushin who was traveling as an attendant to John Daidoloria, a Zen Roshi, and said they stepped out of a motel room in the pre-dawn hour to see, overhead in the still darkened sky, a most unusual phenomena. A bright light sprang into existence and with a great whooshing sound expanded to an enormous ball of color before contracting and fading and then springing out again. They watched in wonder as the process repeated itself several times, remaining entirely baffled as to what might be causing it. Then all at once, Rusushin exclaimed, I know what it is. It's a hot air balloon. The flame is coming from its heating mechanism. Lori looked at Rusushin. You just killed it, he said. So there's a way that when we know what's happening, um, there's a way when we're too sure about what's happening that we kill a sense of wonder or curiosity or openness to seeing what it is because now what we're seeing is our idea of what it is. And in meditation, we're trying to... um, suspend knowing in some ways and being really curious about what is the actual experience, just the connection with it. So for example, well, I'm thinking of um, when I practice sometimes in Burma, the Burmese sayadaws are great at um, getting really interested and really detailed about what's going on in the heart-body-mind process. And one time there was the um, Burmese master at the monastery where Greg and I go quite a bit, named Sayada Ulakana. And he gave two talks one time, two 75-minute talks, on the pain one feels in the buttocks when sitting. <laughs> like that's, he could get that interested that he could talk for 150 minutes <laughs> on that. And... Um, when you sit for 75 minutes, yeah, I usually know what he's talking about with the pain in the buttocks. But I'm always fascinated by that. I remember one time he took a whole Dharma talk to, about, to talk about one-sixth of a step that we take. So I'm thinking, what about, let's, let's give an example. So let's say we have a knee pain. So we... We kind of have this idea about a knee pain. We know what a knee pain is. But mostly we know what our idea of a knee pain is. 
But what's the actual experience? So the investigation is to move close to that experience and see what's happening. And when we move close, we see that what we call a knee pain is a swirling of various sensations that increase and decrease in intensity. We usually notice that we hate it and want it to go away. We notice that we take it very personally and seriously. So we keep looking and we notice that it's um, a process of change. It's not a, a noun, it's a verb. A knee pain is a verb. And we see that if we depend on our knee feeling a certain way that we're going to suffer and be dissatisfied. And we might see the connection between the sense contact, burning, stinging, pulling, aching, the sense contact, the unpleasantness, and the reactivity of mind. We start to see how those three um, connect to create suffering. And sometimes we start to see that there is the intense pain or or, uh, sensation, unpleasant, and that the mind doesn't go into reactivity. It just is. It is as it is. That the mind is freed in that moment from this conditioning of reactivity. The, The automatic conditioning of reactivity to unpleasantness, the aversion. And we see that the, that the knee pain is uncontrollable, that we don't have the power to tell it how to be. And we start to see that it's a manifestation of, of the elements, of different um, elemental uh, uh, energies or flavors, which we'll hear more about tomorrow night. And we begin to understand that painful sensations are a natural part of life. And because this area of sensation is continually changing. It's hard to peg it down as me or mine or permanent or even a thing. This is investigation. Now, I used a lot of words. It's not so many words in our actual exploration because we're just being with this experience moment by moment with an open-hearted curiosity. All this from being with a pain in the knee. The Buddha said, In this fathom-long body, all of the universe can be discovered. The truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering. So sometimes we can increase this, our, our strength and this quality of investigation with um, questions or inquiries in the mind. We have to be careful because the questions aren't meant for us to think about the answer, but the questions are meant to point directly to our experience, to, again, investigate the moment-to-moment experience. 
So a common question that you've heard us ask is, what is the attitude in the mind? It's that relationship to what is happening. And we're not meant to say, hmm, well, what is the attitude in the mind? Well, it might be this or that. No, we look directly at the mind to see what the attitude is. One yogi said today that a question she uses sometimes is, can I be content right now? That's not meant to be answered yes or no. It's not meant to try to fit our experience into contentment. It's meant to actually direct us to look and see what possibilities might be present in that moment that we had overlooked. A while ago I was on a retreat where we were given the instructions to ask, Who? Who is looking? Who is hearing? And sometimes I would use it for, Who is being irritated? <laughs> and and the, the question was so great. It wasn't to think about, Oh, is there a self? Is there not a self? Um, that question, Who? cause the mind or the awareness to look back and to find nothing that we could peg it to. And then the mind um, let go of this layer of conditioning that I hadn't, or of um, identification that I hadn't even known was there. So the word or the question was meant to direct me back to looking at experience. So questions like this, best to use a little sparingly because otherwise we can get a little carried away. We can find ourselves getting lost in Dharma thoughts and and derailed from actually being with our experience. So we we want those questions to point right back to what's happening. Let's look a little bit more at this attitude with which we do this investigation, the question, what is the attitude in the mind? So some experiences happening in the heart-mind calls our attention, or the body calls our attention, so usually it has some pleasant or unpleasant quality when it calls our attention. And if we look deeply, we often see that our attitude is one of either wanting and trying to make something happen or trying to get rid of something. And sometimes the very turning towards experience hides this wanting or not wanting, this wanting or aversion, or I I call it a kind of aggression with experience. It may be subtle, may be obvious. Yesterday, uh, Andrea Andrea was talking about how... um, the hindrances can manifest as very subtle or much more obvious. So in this kind of looking at our attitude towards experience, it may be very obvious that we hate the experience, we want it to go away. Or it might be it might be pretending that we're being with the knee pain to really get to know it, but we really want it to go away, that that's like a kind of hidden hidden agenda going on. I don't think we can ever underestimate the um, the hidden aggression, 
that can happen with how we pay attention and how we investigate experience. Ray Bradbury said in a quote that I read recently that I find quite, it tickles me for some reason. He said, life shouldn't be touched, not strangled. (laughs) Sometimes we like, we're out to strangle our experience. We get good at doing it in a kind of what looks like a spiritual manner. But as we, you know, I'm still after 33 years finding like levels of aggression that I can have towards experience without knowing it that's hidden until I really pay attention. One way I found to notice this is um, through some instructions that I've gotten in my Qigong uh, practice. I've been practicing Qigong for a number of years. And uh, the style that I practice is very, very slow. At first I found it irritatingly slow. Um, And they have this rule they call the 70% rule. And basically you're only supposed to stretch 70% as far as you can when you do the qigong. I'm not a 70% kind of gal. I'm more like 95, 100. <laughs> and so it's really funny because when I first started doing this practice, I thought that that applied to everybody else but not me. <laughs> that it was okay. I could get over, I could get by with doing more than 70%. And um, what I started to see is that when I was trying to do 95, 100%, Um, or more, that I was actually, uh, that my attitude was um, aggressive. Even though I, you know, I might not notice it at first, that that I was pushing myself. And so then I started to learn how to back off to about 70%. Seventy percent was more intense because I actually had to feel what was going on. So sometimes when we're with our experience here and we're going at it at 100%, um, what we're actually doing is avoiding feeling it. We're more trying to control it. That's what's happening. So play. You can play with this, like, how, how are you investigating? How are you going towards what's happening? Try 100, but then try 70% and see what happens. Often it comes out of the fact that, um, well, we're suffering, and we want the suffering to end. And there's this this, this thought that with our willpower we can make the suffering end that we we go towards it with willpower that we can control it somehow and end it but that's not the way it works the way it works is if we can go towards it with something much gentler and much kinder and energy much gentler and much kinder I was talking about this the other day of bringing an attitude of kindness into our meditation practice. What do I mean by that? There's a story of a a famous African-American man named George Washington Carver. 
He was born into slavery in the 1850s in this country, and then as a as a man, a free man, he became a very famous naturalist. And he had this genius for working with plants to heal. And there's a quote from what he said about how he learned. He was asked, how did he learn what he knew about healing? And he said, all the flowers talk to me and so do hundreds of living things in the woods. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. I learn what I know by watching and loving everything. He didn't just say watching. He said watching and loving. And I can see him standing there in the woods, still and quiet, listening, receiving, respecting all the plants that he's learning from. Perhaps uh, loving our experience has some flavor like that. Listening, respecting, receiving. And this sense of loving actually allows us to get closer to experience, to get intimate with it. If there's some subtle aggression, some wanting or diswanting in our investigation, it's always going to block the deepest connection. So we learn, um, we learn by watching and loving experience everything. So of course, this isn't always possible, right? But we can drop it as a suggestion. We can hold it as a possibility in our minds that when we investigate our experience, our goal is not to control it, to master it, to fix it, but that perhaps our goal is to love and understand it. Greg told you a bit about the Buddha's journey um, the other night. I want to say a few more things about it. Because I think that this journey of the Buddha's awakening really um, parallels what I'm talking about. When the Buddha started out uh, on his meditation journey, or his journey um, to, to deeply understand life, it seemed that he was more interested in controlling and dominating experience than he was in investigating it. So first he did a lot of concentration practices, um, basically um, oriented towards getting out of here, <laughs> basically getting away from the human experience, transcending it. And then all the ascetic practices, right, that Greg described to you, control, trying to control this human experience. So how we often start out, too, wanting to get out of here or to control what's happening. And then things finally changed for him when he softened when he remembered that time when he was a child sitting under the tree. Remembered this kind of gentle, 
full-hearted connection with life, more like the joyous interest which we may get to tonight. (laughs) And then he accepted food from a woman. And then when we hear the story of his final night of awakening, I think it might be metaphorically a night, but it might have been longer than that. (laughs) The, The story is that in a night, all of life came at him. All the forces of greed and hatred and delusion came at him, and he could sit there with it all. I see this as a kind of softening that he was able to to let life in rather than dominate it or try to transcend it. Very earthy too, right? When, the, when Mara asked him what right he had to be there, he touched the earth. Very down to earth. So different than his initial trying to transcend. Sometimes I think maybe I can point yogis just towards the softening part. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe we all have to go through that patterning. I had to. It's kind of wild that that perhaps uh, this kind of conditioning that sometimes we think of as Western conditioning, perhaps it's just human. And it's from, you know, 2,600 years ago. It's from today that we'll try anything first but to actually be here fully human. Humanity as a last resort. Maybe we have to try first and see that transcendence does solve our problems just like the Buddha learned. And and then maybe we have to see that that, uh, control and domination doesn't solve our predicament either. And then we try humanity as a last resort. Then we soften and we learn to let life in and to let life teach us. And this investigation, this turning towards this heart, body, and mind, this human being This investigation leads to the seeing and the freeing of deeper and deeper layers of conditioning and beliefs and places where the heart and mind are bound. I love how it keeps unfolding. A while ago I was um, leaving IMS. I'd been here and it had been fairly quiet and I was driving home and I turned on the news and... um, don't worry, you're not missing anything. Um, I, <laughs> I turned on the on the news, and a mistake probably, right? And so I was listening to what was going on in the world, and um, I was overcome with this deep sense of cynicism. Partly it was, it was just the world seems so complex, and like it's going towards more and more and more complexity, which is not what my heart desires. And oh, all kinds of layers of, of um, things going on there, right? And when I had this experience, two things stood out for me. 
First, that it was very, the, the cynicism was very intense. And second, that I was extremely interested in it. It's not a place that I tend to think that my mind goes towards. Dharma teachers aren't cynical, are we? <laughs> you know, so it was some place that I, I had been so afraid of on some level that I would that I it was not an experience that I had been able to meet wholeheartedly, but in that moment I was, and I just watched this. Uh, this deep unfolding of these beliefs and layers of feeling that was behind the conditioning, and I just stayed with it, and behind the cynicism, and I just stayed to it. I opened to it. I actually felt it. And I actually felt compassionate towards it. So sometimes when there's suffering, this feeling of kindness is actually a feeling of compassion, a kind of soft, caring about what's happening. And what's beautiful with these kinds of explorations and what was beautiful for me in this experience was that this turning towards it, this willing to, this willingness to feel the truth of my experience led to a feeling of release, of freedom, of joy even. Cynicism is not a problem. And it's not a problem because it went away. It's not a problem because it doesn't have power over me and the way it did before. I'm not afraid of it. I can be with that. That's the release. The release is that that's no longer an experience that has to be bound up in some way, exiled, um, um, separated from. A fuller and fuller sense of being human. So what's the absence? So they're talking a lot about investigation. What's the absence of investigation? I would say the absence of investigation is um, resistance. We don't really want to know how it is, right? We don't not want to know the truth. We, we would really just like to be a little more comfortable if we can pull that off. <laughs> or sometimes the mind just wants a break, right? It just goes off into thought. It's like, I just, I want out of here. Or we try, again, like to control experience. I have a healthy respect for resistance. That's not disresistance. We all have periods of resistance on retreat. It's really, it's, it's actually, we go in and out of them, right? It's normal. We might go in and out of them in, in um, many, many times in one sitting. Or we might notice major waves of resistance that last for hours or a day or maybe longer. I think of resistance as just trying to pace and time our journey. In some ways it's a kind of rest, but it really isn't because it's hard work to resist. <laughs> but it's, it's a rest from reality. Can we hold resistance with kindness also? 
and wait, wait it out. If we wait it out, um, at some point, the heart and mind, you wouldn't be here if this wasn't true. At some point, the heart and mind is yet, once again, willing to stretch. To stretch into territory that we haven't yet been able to touch or to hold. Once again, the heart and mind will be drawn to truth. Drawn to freedom. (laughs) I think um, we're not going to say a whole lot about effort because we've talked about it some. Actually, I've been talking about it some. Greg talked about it some. I'd like to move into talking a little bit about joyous interest for the rest of the talk tonight. So we have mindfulness, we have investigation, and we have effort. So the kingpin mindfulness, the first two energizing factors of investigation and effort. And with these factors of awakening, these qualities of heart and mind, we find ourselves settling more and more into the present moment. And we start to feel the joy of simple presence, of landing in the moment. This is a factor of joyous interest. The first three, mindfulness, investigation, and effort, are said um, to be um, factors that we can do, that we, have in, that we can put input in. We can uh, have the intention to be more mindful. We can orient more towards investigation. We can raise the energy level. The last four, starting with joyous interest, are said to be results. That we can't make them happen, but they come out of the fruition of the first three. So we can't like make this kind of joyous interest in simple presence, but it comes out of our effort, our investigation, repeated moments of mindfulness. And we start to, also through this kind of renunciation of, of, of indulging in the thought world, We start to land more in the present moment, not obsessing so much over the past, not projecting so much into the future, but landing right here. And we experience this simple presence as a kind of unburdening. Really, it's an unburdening of carrying the past and the future, or the thoughts of the past and the thoughts of the future. And just landing here. And we experience the joy of seeing and uh, being with the wonder of this amazing world that we've been born into. It's said that when PT or joyous interest is strong, everything is dear to us. A breath is dear to us. A step is dear to us. 
Everything is dear. And the essence of this joyful interest is a wholehearted, full-hearted sense of being present. The mind and body become suffused with awareness. Now you may or you may not experience extended, extended times of this, but I bet all of you will taste it at least. And might it almost feels like a moment of grace when it first when we first have these kinds of experiences. I remember actually the first time I experienced that on this retreat, laid on a retreat, uh, my first long retreat. And I was sitting, I was at the pot washing sink. I was washing um, pots and it had snowed outside. I was looking out the window and um, it was bright, sunny out there. And I suddenly felt this overwhelming joy of just being present. And it was so strong that I started to cry. Tears ran down my cheeks. I didn't know that I could be so happy just being present, nothing. I was washing dishes. <laughs> nothing exciting happening. We start to experience a joyful interest with nothing exciting happening. It's just, it doesn't matter what's happening. It's a, it's a kind of unconditional joy. We no longer wish to be anywhere but right here. Doesn't matter if it's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The joy comes from the presence. A few years ago, I was practicing in Burma, and um, the way I did walking meditation this, this retreat, I was very curious to see if I could land wholeheartedly in the present moment through an entire step. I know it sounds like a low bar, but um, when we really pay attention, it was so interesting. I wanted to see if I could really land there with no wish to be anywhere else but right with a step. And sometimes I could be And then it was also amazing to watch how many times in one step the mind would want to be somewhere else, would want something else to be happening, would want to get away. And I felt joyful interest and resistance in each step. Try it sometime. Didn't read any of those. (laughs) I like this story, though. I want to share this one with you. I used to teach the teen retreat here. I did for about 18 years. And um, really lovely to watch teenagers um, get the, the joy of meditation. So this was by one young man said I could share it. 
The first time I was on retreat at IMS, I hadn't yet been born. I was curled up inside my mother's womb. As a child, I attended the family retreat each summer. As I got older, I went to the teen retreat. And I want to describe, he wants to describe a particular moment when he was 17. Last summer, during a sit toward the end of the teen course, I was going about my normal routine, settling the mind, focusing on the breath, and letting ambient sounds come and go. Suddenly, I experienced a first in my meditation practice. I was uncontrollably happy. Feelings of total relaxation, of fullness, of being in the right place and doing the right thing were produced. Experiencing this happiness was extremely powerful. It wasn't about beating a video game or buying a new pair of shoes, but was pure joy in its simplest form, joy about nothing at all. Added to that was the awesome presence of 60 other teenagers meditating all around me which brought sensations of absolute comfort, safety, belonging, and most of all, positive energy. I was radiating positive energy. Everyone in the hall was. I was at the pinnacle of my spiritual mind-altering high. Breathe in, breathe out, and a couple minutes later, I was back to the struggle of staying in the present. While this deep happiness only lasted a short time, it was gratifying to know how rewarding it is. It has given me the curiosity to become more mindful on a day-to-day basis, whether it's taking a deep breath every so often to remind myself of now or noticing subtle scenes of beauty while walking down a sidewalk. So those few moments were a paradigm shift for him saw the possibility of a different kind of happiness than how we usually think about it, just being with the breath. Someone asked the Dalai Lama what was the happiest moment of his life. And his answer was, this moment. This moment is the happiest moment. That's the essence of joyful interest or contentment. This kind of joyous interest really comes from um, sticking at it, you know, sticking at the practice, keep going. And continuity can be very helpful with that. There's this power that comes from having the intention to be mindful from waking up through the day, all the way through the day till we go to sleep. Upandita used to ask us whether we went to sleep on an in-breath or an (laughs) out-breath. I I never was very good at that. (laughs) But there is this um, power that comes from this continuity of mindfulness. It supports the uncluttering of the mind and heart, which, which supports this joyful presence, this joyful interest.
And if um, the idea seems like overwhelming or like it might be kind of suffocating, you can you can just start by adding in certain things that you do as mindfulness periods. Some perhaps from the time you get up from your seat and walk to your um, walking period or walking place, that could be a mindfulness period, or brushing your teeth or um, eating. We really should uh, find some time to talk more about eating meditation. I know when it was first suggested to me, I did not like the idea that I was um, that it was requested that I have the intention to be mindful all day. But um, by by adding in little bits and little bits, then you, you stretch your capacity in it, and it and it becomes um, you could amaze yourself perhaps by what you could do that you did not know that you could do. A yogi today was telling me, she was describing how she took my advice of just following the schedule. And um, she said it it, it had been absolutely helpful that um, uh, she was seeing so much and that um, what she was seeing, some of it was not at all nice or or easy. Um, But the simplicity of just following the schedule and then following it even when she didn't want to, um, you could see that this joyous interest had been sparked because she was so interested in what was happening in her heart and mind and body. That said, I do want to point out that for some people, it's not going to be useful. But it's worth giving it a try if you haven't tried it. If you already know that that level of intensity, perhaps we can say, is not helpful to you, then please don't let my saying that bend you out of shape. In my early practice, I did really stick to the schedule for a number of years, and then I had a retreat where it was actually not at all helpful for me to do that. My teacher told me I could sit once a day, and that was all that I was allowed That was very hard, too. That was its own challenge. It was harder for me than sitting and walking the whole schedule. Um, So so at different times, we are going to have different different styles or different ways of practicing. And this is definitely something that you can talk with your teachers about and and, um, explore. What is most helpful for you for landing here in the present moment over and over again? And perhaps the absence, what would be the absence of joyous interest? It would um, perhaps be boredom. Boredom is a huge part of meditation practice. I may do a talk on it later. Um... For now, I'll just say, can you get interest in boredom? It's, it's an experience that many of us do not want to include in our repertoire of acceptable experiences. It's one, it actually frightens us, I think, a lot of us. So if there's boredom, can you bring that investigation to boredom? What, what, what's going on? What's our actual experience in that moment? 
And then another absence of joyous uh, interest might be um, when we've just gotten a little bit too tedious in our meditation where it's become a little bit too much of a chore and we've forgotten how to refresh the mind and heart. We've forgotten how to fresh the, refresh the mind when it needs refreshment. My voice recognition sophomore said when it needs refreshments. <laughs> Which maybe it needs too. <laughs> but how do we ref- you know, bring um, a lighter energy to our practice when we need it? It's good to know how to do this. especially when there's a lot of dukkha, a lot of suffering. I read a story one time about after the Oklahoma bombing, um, they had dogs go um, in to search for survivors or for um, uh, just to search the wreckage. And um, these dogs would work for about two hours and then their owner or their whoever was managing them would take them off and play for a while with the dogs and then the dogs would go back to work and it was said that if the that if the dogs didn't get their um their kind of their break like that they would um get depressed so if there's a lot of dukkha if you're really dealing with heavy stuff sometimes it's really helpful to to know what what refreshes the mind it might be getting outside or appreciating beauty that helps a lot Kempo Rinpoche, a famous Tibetan lama, um, was asked to tell a story about the many three-year retreats he had done. And he answered, he said two sentences about the happiness he felt one time watching the sunrise. That's like a koan, isn't it? I like that. So we don't try to make searching out for pleasantness um, our goal in meditation, but it can be used skillfully when the mind needs balance, needs a little bit more joy or lightness of spirit. So fortified with mindfulness, investigation, energy, and joyous interest, we move on in our journey of awakening. And later we will hear more about calming factors of tranquility and concentration and equanimity. Spiritual friendship is said to be the... um, universal supportive cause for the rising of the factors of awakening. And so I like to think of us here as a community of spiritual friends. We all value these um, factors of awakening and knowing that we're here together valuing these factors and strengthening this is a supportive cause um, for their arising.
think I'll just end with a little quote that by um, Pema Chodron. On the journey of awakening, the path goes down, not up, as if the mountain pointed towards the earth instead of the sky. Instead of transcending the suffering of all creatures, we move towards turbulence and doubt however we can. We explore the reality and unpredictability of insecurity and pain, and we try not to push it away. If it takes years, if it takes lifetimes, we let it be as it is. At our own pace, without speed or aggression, we move down and down and down. With us move millions of others, companions in awakening from fear. Well, my dear companions, let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.